If you've been with us uh, throughout this Lenten season, you'll know that we have been uh, looking at the last words of Jesus Christ as he uh, gave himself up, as he hung upon the cross. Uh, the first week, we looked at this passage from Luke, 20, uh, Luke chapter 23 that said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And what we saw was that even at the moment of Christ's execution, Jesus prayed for forgiveness for those who were most responsible for his death. The next week, we looked at this passage from Luke chapter 23. Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. We saw that even at the moment of Jesus' death, he assured grace and salvation to a common criminal, a sinner who was deserving of justice and punishment. And yet, he joined Jesus that moment in paradise. The third passage we looked at was from John chapter 19, Woman, behold your son, and behold your mother. We saw that even at the end of Christ's life, Jesus cared for those that he would leave behind, especially his mother and his closest friends. Last week, we looked at the passage in Matthew 27 that said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We saw that Jesus was abandoned and forsaken by God the Father. He suffered through all of that so that you and I would not have to. This morning we come to uh, the shortest of phrases that Jesus spoke on the cross in his last hours here on earth. We're going to be reading from uh, John 19, verses 28 to 29. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the opportunity to gather for worship, even though it might be uh, in a very different way than we are used to. But we're thankful also, Lord, that uh, you are not bound um, by homes, you're not bound by quarantines or viruses or anything, but uh, wherever anyone gathers for worship, your presence is assured, your presence is there. So be with us as we now reflect on your word over the next few moments. May your scripture speak to our hearts. May you speak to us in the way uh, that we most need to hear it this morning. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So this is the, the shortest of passages that we've looked at this Lenten season. Um, and, but even though it's short, there's a lot that's really going on here. And there's two images in this passage that I would like us to reflect on and like us uh, to look at. And those images, I think, bring home uh, an incredibly significant thing to us and uh, to our salvation, of course. And what we'll see is this. This is what I hope we'll see. Because Jesus suffered thirst, because his blood was shed, our spiritual thirst can be satisfied. We can be made full. And so the first image we're going to look at this morning is this image of thirst. Verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. I want you to think back to your uh, elementary science class that uh, might have been a long time ago for some of you, maybe not so long for others. 
But one of the things your science teachers probably taught you is that the human body is mostly water. That uh, the human body is made up about 60% of water. So it's a fundamental piece of, of who we are. In fact, if you watch any of those survival shows that have become very popular on television, uh, you'll know that a lot of the, the characters on these survival shows, they can go for days upon days upon days without eating, and they're okay. But if they miss just one or two or three days without drinking anything, then their bodies begin to shut down. Now, I know this uh, all too well. Many of you know uh, I'm a runner, and because I'm a runner, the, my nemesis is hot and humid weather. And I could go for miles and miles, but if it's hot and it's humid out, then it feels like I fall apart. And there have been times in my life where I've suffered at least from borderline dehydration. Uh, I can think of one of those times where I fell victim to this. I, I couldn't stand up. Uh, the whole world was spinning. I was slurring my speech. And, and no matter how much I drank, I just couldn't catch up. My body was in such a water deficit. And some of you were even there when this happened to me. And so I know what this feels like firsthand. But people in the ancient world knew what this felt like firsthand as well. And so if you look at the scriptures from start to finish, you will see that this theme of water and thirst is all over the scriptures. All you have to do is open your Bibles to the first couple chapters. You read about the Garden of Eden and what was in the center of that Garden of Eden. It had a river that was running through it that watered the entire garden. Fast forward to the end of your scriptures in Revelation chapter 22. You read about New Jerusalem. You read about this new city and what is flowing in the center of this city. It's a garden flowing through it is a great river, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God. And so you see this image of water at the beginning. You see it at the end. And then, of course, you see it all throughout the scriptures as well. One of the stories that this becomes uh, most palatable in is the story of Hagar in Genesis chapter 21. Of course, we know that because of some bitter family dynamics, Hagar and her young son Ishmael were exiled from the family. Uh, they were sent in the wilderness to die. There was no water there, and of course, Ishmael was the first to begin to suffer uh, the effects of dehydration. Hagar realizes that, that Ishmael is about to die, and she can't bear the sight of seeing her young and only son die. So she puts Ishmael by a bush, and she moves a distance away, not bearing the sight to see her child suffer. But in that moment, God meets her. God meets her in her thirst, and he opens up her eyes to see a well of water. It says this, uh, in Genesis uh, chapter 21, then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. So at the end of this story, she and her son Ishmael are saved. The waters brought their lives back from the grave. Hundreds of years later, we find Moses wandering in the wilderness too. He's in a place called Meribah. But Moses isn't alone this time. He has the whole Israelite nation with him, and the whole nation is dying for thirst. The whole nation is on the brink of death because of the lack 
of water. And so they begin to get angry with Moses. They begin to turn on Moses. And so Moses goes before God and God instructs him to strike a rock that was in front of them. And this is what happened. And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly and the congregation drank and their livestock. So what you see in the ancient world is that water is always equated with life. It is a source of life. Now the prophets, if you keep going in your scriptures, the prophets even take this a step farther. What's so beautiful about the prophetic uh, material in the scriptures is that the prophets had a knack for communicating truth. And they knew that the best way to communicate truth was to connect physical realities with spiritual truth. They understood that that images have a way of communicating the truth in a more powerful way than sometimes even bare fact does. So what the prophets do is they take this concept of thirst and they apply it to the spiritual. Listen to what Isaiah says in Isaiah 55. He said this, "'Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, "'and he who has no money, Come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and labor for that which does not satisfy? So what is Isaiah saying in this passage? He's essentially saying that each and every person has a spiritual thirst and a spiritual hunger. You see, sin has left each one of us, everyone who's born spiritually empty. Sin has left us bankrupt. Sin has left each one of us wanting. And we all have a deep need and a deep desire to be spiritually made full. And what the scriptures consistently remind us is that God is the one who makes us full. He is the source for being made full. But what he offers, Isaiah tells us, is this. What he offers is something you can't buy. It's something that you can't earn. Instead, it is something that is given to you. So as Isaiah says, why work so hard? Why labor after things that ultimately will not satisfy you? The prophet Jeremiah picked up on this as well. He says this in Jeremiah 2 verse 13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the foundation of living waters, and have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now, a cistern were these giant collecting pools that held all sorts of fresh water, which would be the source of life in the ancient times. And so to have a broken cistern meant that that wouldn't work for you. It meant that you would be cut off from the very source of life. And so what Jeremiah is doing here is he is reminding us that God is the source of life. But yet in our rebellion, we seek after lesser things. We we seek after things that at the end of the day are like broken cisterns that hold no water. And so think for a minute about what the prophets are trying to say here. They're trying to say that everyone has a spiritual thirst. 
They're trying to say that we're always trying to quench that thirst. But they remind us that trying to quench that thirst with anything that is not the ultimate foundation of life, that is not God, will ultimately just bring us futility and eventually spiritual death. So I think the question we have to ask ourselves is this. What are the places that you go? What are the places that I go? What are the places that we go in order to quench our thirst that really at the end of the day are just broken cisterns that hold no life whatsoever? Like any kid, um, in Baltimore, I learned that sports was uh, a very big value. It's something about this city, something about this area. Sports is a big deal. It's a high value. So I can remember as a very young kid, I started to play lacrosse. And when in one of my first uh, lacrosse games, I scored four goals in the game. And overnight, I was a lacrosse star. And it was great. I felt so great about myself. And then uh, over the years playing lacrosse, the other kids got bigger and I just didn't get bigger. And so I was no longer a lacrosse star. And so I switched to running and track and field. And then I was a track and field star running uh, fast and doing all these other things. And then through circumstances in life, the Lord ended up taking that away as well. And so as a young adolescent trying to find what my identity was, these things kept being taken away from me. They weren't satisfying me in ways that were long and in ways that were lasting. That was true of my life as an adolescent, but I think that's true for us adults as well. Maybe it isn't sports, but it could be any number of other different things. Maybe it's a career. Maybe it's a, a reputation. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a socioeconomic status. All these things can be wonderful and good things, but none of them will eventually quench our spiritual thirst. All of them are cisterns that are broken. After all, the great theologian, Jim Carrey, uh, once said this. He said, I wish everyone could, like me, get everything they ever wanted only to discover that there really is nothing there. You see, friends, I think sometimes the most loving thing God does for us is to take away our substitute sources of life. He takes away those God replacements. And often when he does, it can be very disruptive. It can even be very painful. But sometimes I think we need to see the futility of the way we are living in order to see the true source of life that comes in God. If you go to the Gospels, Jesus had a, a remarkable discussion with a woman at the well, and this was the substance of their conversation. Jesus said to that woman at the well in John chapter 4, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. And catch what Jesus says here. That water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. If you keep reading in the Gospel of John, at one point Jesus uh, breaks forth in this truth. He announces to all that are around him in John chapter 7, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. 
Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then we come to our passage this morning. We come to Jesus himself on the cross and we find Jesus himself, the source of living water, saying, I thirst. He says, I thirst. Of course, this is Jesus's humanity that is on display. He had been deprived of water in the last hours of his life. And again, his mind draws back to Psalm 22. We've we've kept coming back to Psalm 22 all throughout this Lenten series. And in Psalm 22, it says this, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. And so as we come to the cross, we see that Jesus, yes, is physically thirsty. But I think there's a spiritual component to Christ's thirst as well. And here is the truth of what we see here at the cross. We see that Jesus had to suffer a spiritual thirst so that your spiritual thirst and my spiritual thirst could be quenched. He suffered want so that you and I could experience abundance. So there's a powerful image that's happening here of thirst on the cross, but it isn't the only image that is here in these short two verses. There's another image that's, that's a little tougher to see, but is no less rich, and that is the image of the hyssop branch. Look at verse 29 again. It says, A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Now, some of those little details probably don't seem very significant to you and I. But for a faithful Jew who was reading this passage, all sorts of alarm bells would go off when they heard these little details. You see, the cross is is the most significant moment in all of redemptive history. And when we come to the cross, we see uh, both God's grace in magnificent display, but also God's judgment clearly on display as well. And there was another moment in the scriptures where both of these attributes were on display as well. If you go all the way back to the book of Exodus, You read about God's rescue plan, how he was rescuing the Israelites from their enslavement to the Egyptians. And you read about the 10th plague, one of those plagues, but the last and final one. And in that 10th plague, you recognize that God was about to put his judgment on display. He was going to put his judgment on display by killing the firstborn in all of Egypt. But just as his judgment is on display, so his grace towards his people, the Israelite people, would be on display as well. But for the people of Israel to experience his grace, for them to be recipients of this grace and not judgment, they were instructed to do a few things. They would need to prepare a a spotless Passover lamb. They would need to kill that lamb and they would need to take its blood 
and place it upon the doorposts of their home. And if they did this, they would receive God's grace. If they did this, they would be saved from God's judgment. But one of the things that you notice is that what was the thing to be used to apply that blood onto the doorpost? Well, it was a hyssop branch. They were to use a hyssop branch to apply the blood of the sacrifice onto their doorpost so that they would be saved, so that they could be recipients of God's grace. And so now on the cross, we see the once and for all Passover lamb's blood that would need to be shed and a hyssop branch would be a part of that story. You see, Jesus would need to drink the cup of God's wrath. And that was, of course, the source of Jesus's thirst at the beginning and at the end. Stanley Hauerwas says that the cup of God's wrath cannot be removed if we are to be saved from the dryness that is our lives. You see, the blood of this Passover lamb would need to be shed so that you and I could be recipients of God's grace and not his judgment. So that we who are sinners could be forgiven. So that we who are spiritually thirsty can have our souls quenched. You see, the truth of the gospel is this. Because Jesus experienced both physical and spiritual thirst, you and I will never have to experience spiritual thirst When we enter into a relationship with our God, the scriptures promise that a fountain of life, a fountain of living water will begin in our lives and it will never run dry. And so friends, I think God calls us all to this, to stop pursuing life from things that are broken, from broken cisterns that can hold no water. And instead, God calls us to drink from the well that will never run dry. Let's pray.